Familiarity breeds contempt. Most likely all of us have heard this, said this, thought this. It means prolonged exposure to someone causes us to think that we know all about that person to the extent that we may lose respect for them. In other words, experiencing someone on a regular basis can make us blind to who that person really is. They've become so known to us that we focus on how they are known to us and maybe their faults rather than their virtues. Many writers have used this expression to help readers grasp various relationships, but the origin of the saying is believed to have come from Aesop, the Greek storyteller who lived in the 6th century B.C., Aesop's life is pretty obscure to us. We know that he was a slave who told short stories, which we know as fables, which were transmitted orally and then written down at a later date. There's a phrase at the end of each tale that gives a moral of the story. Listen to the tale of the fox and the lion. When when first the fox saw the lion, he was terribly frightened and ran away and hid himself in the wood. Next time, however, he came near the king of beasts, he stopped at a safe distance and watched him pass by. The third time they came near one another, the fox went straight up to the lion and passed the time of day with him, asking how his family were and when they would have the pleasure of seeing him again. Then turning his tail, he parted from the lion without much ceremony. The moral of the story, familiarity breeds contempt. Now what's interesting to me about this fable is that I would not have guessed that this story would be where the saying is from. We use it in a different way today, maybe more like this. There were two lions who settled down to live in mutual harmony. One grew tired of how the other was always tearing into their food in a disgusting way and started eating alone so they didn't have to watch it. Familiarity breeds contempt. Or there were two foxes who knew each other well because they grew up in the same wood. One went away while the other stayed to live in the same place. On a fair day, the one who went away came back to say, hello. The fox who stayed was dismayed to see the other return because that fox had done well for themselves and the one who stayed home had bad feelings about them. In every way imaginable, the fox who never left was mean to the one who did until they departed again never to return. Familiarity breeds contempt. Now, this last fable that I made up (laughs) describes the scene that we read today. Jesus has decided to come home for a visit. We know from earlier passages his relationship with his family is strained, and they have made their feelings known that, they, that he should stop this nonsense he calls ministry. We don't know why Jesus chooses to go home now, except in the next section, we see him sending out his disciples to teach. So perhaps he's trying to model for them what to do. If that's the case, the disciples might be scared to go after they see what happens to Jesus today. So, Mark chapter 6, 1 through 6. Listen to what it says. 
he left that place and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. On the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who healed him were astounded. They said, where did this man get all this? What is this wisdom that has been given to him? What deeds of power are being done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Then Jesus said to them, prophets are not without honor, except in their hometown and among their kin and in their own house. And he could do no deed of power there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and cured them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. Then he went out among the villagers teaching. There's another popular saying that says, we can't go home again. This, of course, means that coming back to the place where we grew up will be different upon our return. We may expect or just wish for it to be the same, but that is rarely the case. Often our return is different because we have changed in the interim. We've come back with more experience and knowledge than when we left. In this scene, the difficulty that Jesus encounters in coming to his hometown is because of the reception he receives. As we've seen, it's not a warm embrace. Like the fox, the people were fairly certain they knew all about this guy who'd come back to see them. His familiarity to them made them question everything about him. So that as Jesus re-enters the place where he grew up, he and the townspeople are mutually shocked by how they find each other. This morning we're going to talk about how the townspeople react to Jesus and then his response to them. So may the Holy Spirit speak to us through his word. The people of Nazareth are astounded by Jesus' teaching in the synagogue. This is what Mark tells us. We assume the last time they saw him is when he began his ministry, and they knew him as someone who worked with his hands, not someone who was formally trained as a rabbi. Notice that by their own admission, they believe he has wisdom. They believe that he can do miracles, but they discount the good he can do because of what they know about him. He has come home an accomplished teacher who utilizes God's power in great ways. But they focus in those markers that discount him in their view of the world. He's a carpenter. His mother lives in our town. She's a single mom. We know his siblings. It's offensive to them that he would try to raise above his station to teach them something. In their time, of course, in many times and places, class lines were rigidly defined. One did not break out very easily. People were expected to stay in their position that they were born into. They looked at what they knew to be true about him, and they thought, yeah, we know this guy. And they thought that's all there was. In our time and culture, we often celebrate the fact that Jesus was a carpenter, that he worked with his hands, that he was a common guy, that we can relate to him. But for them, this would be a discrediting factor. 
We recognize that there's a place for discernment. They were correct to listen to what he had to say. It was smart for them to see if he was from God. They believe he is, but they can't accept him. Pretty much this is pure prejudice, isn't it? It pretty much sums up what's happening. They dismiss him quickly regardless of his sound teaching and helping others because he lacks so much in their eyes. It's even more than keeping him as a cute 10-year-old that they watched grow. They dishonor God by demeaning the one he sent as being no more than what they can observe about him on the outside. This happens every day in our world. The bias and the prejudice. The townspeople are trying to keep Jesus in his place. And this logic has been used against young people. And women, people who don't have education, people of color, refugees, newcomers in any context. Basically, people who have no power. And the questions asked here are meant not really as questions. They're meant to remind Jesus that he has no voice there. It's meant to shut him down. Jesus is more than rejected here. He is branded as a nobody who lacks standing in his community. They're amazed at his teaching, but choose not to embrace him. Instead, they choose to be offended by him. He is graciously offering truth, and they are insulted. Now, remember that this comes right after Jesus heals the woman by her just touching his cloak. It comes right after the miraculous rising of Jairus' daughter. Remember, Mark has been telling us people are coming in droves to see Jesus. They can't wait to hear him. They know he's come from God. And here, Jesus comes to them, and they will not have him. I have often heard people say, if only Jesus would come and show himself to me, I would believe in him. Here, Jesus makes himself real. And do they believe? Others lament today how, oh, they've never seen a miracle. Wouldn't it be great if Jesus could just give me a miracle? Then I would believe. Here, Jesus performs miracles, and they're not impressed. I've heard other people say, if God would only tell us what to do and tell us who he is, I would be a better person. The world would be a better place. Here, Jesus is educating the people and is being rejected. His presence, his teaching, the miracles he does here show us that they do not automatically produce respect, much less deep faith. I came across a good quote from Stephen Colbert this week. We might expect humor, but remember, humor runs deep. Here we go. Cynicism masquerades as wisdom, but it is the furthest thing from it. Because cynics don't learn anything. Because cynicism is a self-imposed blindness, a rejection of the world because we are afraid it will hurt us or disappoint us. Cynics always say no, but saying yes begins things. Saying yes is how things grow. So let's pause and think about all this for a minute. 
Who are those that we have treated with cynicism, thinking they have nothing to offer us? Are there those that we have used our influence against in a way that was unfair and not right? Who can we pray for? Who in our lives has discounted Jesus because of the small amount of information that they know about him, but have truly missed who he is? You see, in many ways, we are not different than those from Jesus' hometown. We have prejudice. We have judgments. So where is God urging you to say yes so that you can grow? On the other side, we see here how Jesus cannot understand their unbelief. Mark says Jesus was amazed by it, not in a good way. First off, Jesus takes their offense in stride. He gives them a wisdom saying about how prophets have honor except in their own town and with their own family and in their own house. With this statement, he is stating the truth that we see here. He's not excusing them, but he's saying what we all know to be true. Familiarity breeds contempt. It is at once inevitable in our own brokenness, but also deeply heartbreaking in our marriages, with our children, with our siblings and close friends and co-workers, with fellow Christians and sometimes even the Savior, we have to fight against our contempt for those that we seemingly love the most. Jesus is also aligning himself here with the prophets from the Jewish tradition who found themselves on the defensive against those that God told them to serve. Jesus is prophet. He is a priest. He is a king. He speaks the truth that calls people to account for their thoughts and actions based on the word of the Lord. And just like those prophetic voices who came before, he will be rejected and silenced. While we know this is true, what also must have been true is how much this must have hurt. Because when we stop and we think about the times that we have been rejected, when we have been shunned by those that we loved, those that we trusted the most because they knew us the best, just because Jesus expected it, just because he is God, doesn't mean that it didn't devastate him. Honestly, as we read this, we understand how easy it would have been to just say, okay, and give in on a human level. That's something we have to think about. How do we respond to criticism based on what people just see about us or only superficially know about us to be true? It makes us angry. It makes us feel like this is injustice. It makes us feel, how do we fight against this? It's impossible if people have made their minds up about who we are. But part of us wants acceptance so badly that sometimes we just want to give in. And Jesus says, no. He's teaching us something hard here. He is willing to be rejected. That's not a, a lesson that we want to embrace. But it is a huge truth for those who follow him. A huge truth for people who will be rejected, who will be shunned because of professing Jesus, because of our love for him. We have to decide who are we going to please. 
him and not people who want us to be part of their system. We don't want to compromise who we are, however much we want to be included. The result of all of this is that Jesus could do not much work in Nazareth, which is what it says in verse 5. Does this mean that Jesus limited his power because they were not believing in him? Or does it mean literally he could do nothing? As we read this, we're reminded about how those who listen to teaching have responsibility and how they respond to the Lord. You see, Jesus is teaching here in the synagogue, which is part of the worship of God. We are all worshiping God right now. I am speaking, and I'm getting cues from you about how you are receiving it. If you're accepting what I'm saying, if you're close to what I'm saying, if you're falling asleep, it's evident. It's true. It's all right. Yesterday, we had a meaningful time of commemorating Dr. Martin Luther King. It was a very meaningful time. Beautiful music, lots of good speakers. One of the speakers, a local pastor, was preaching. He was not, like, going at it hard. He was talking just like I am talking right now. And in a conversational tone in the middle of his talk, he said, Can you give me a little help here? And the congregation said, Amen. You see, he was wanting to make sure that we were with him, that in his exhortation and in the truth he was saying, that we were paying attention. Because a sermon is not a monologue, my friends. It is a conversation between the preacher and the audience and the Holy Spirit who is here speaking to us at a level that I'm not really utilizing, right? That God is going underground and talking to our hearts and minds. So are we really receiving him? You see, Jesus is having a hard time because there was no acceptance of who he was. So his impact was limited because they didn't want to hear it. But there's often blame put on the speaker if he or she isn't great. (laughs) But as congregants, we have a responsibility to listen and to respond. My pastor growing up used to tell the youth group that God can speak even through the worst of sermons. I think we were complaining about how the sermons were dry or something like that. And he goes, you know, you have a responsibility too. The Holy Spirit can speak, even through the worst of speakers. (laughs) Can I get an amen? In the book of Mark, faith is a huge theme. It is a crucial piece in receiving what God has come to give. God cannot be limited, but he will restrain his power when he chooses not to override the will of the people. That is what is happening here. He is amazed at their unbelief. But he accepts that it is the reality of the situation, and in the end, he chooses to move on. He keeps doing the work that he was meant to do, and they stay in their old ways. Not moved that the king of glory that they had nourished, that they had taught, that they had helped to grow up had been among them. They could have known him well had they looked at his heart, had they taken time to assess who he really was and what he was really saying and the sincerity of his motivation. What a loss. In Aesop's original fable, The fox does not see the lion for who he really is. He talks to the lion, 
not remembering that at any moment the lion could pounce on him. The people of Nazareth do not see Jesus for who he is. God himself who had come down from heaven to love them and offer salvation. The lion allows the fox to talk to him as if they are equals. But we know certainly that this is not the case. At their reunion, those who know Jesus well treated him with disdain, believing that they were far above him in their station. In both cases, there is a danger of immense proportions for life is at stake in very real ways. Although Jesus makes himself vulnerable to humankind, we must not forget that he is the ruler over all. So as we wrestle with this passage and who Jesus is, let us continue in worshipful prayer before him, asking him to speak truth to us. Thank you for listening. If you would like to learn more about the Free Methodist Church of Santa Barbara, you can visit us online at fmcsb.org. We pray this message has been a blessing to you.